Test. There we go. You guys made it hard for me to figure out how to start today because all the questions you had last week that I didn't, I wasn't sure where I am in my notes and what I did, so we'll see how to... We're, we're on uh, the commandment, you shall not murder. So... <clears throat> And I guess, I guess I will just go through my notes like we, like we didn't have so much discussion last week, um, and then you guys can ask questions again, probably the best way. Because we started the week before uh, opening up to questions on honor father and mother, and that got us all over the place. So um, we'll start with my notes today, see how that goes. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for uh, the commandments. Uh, they reflect who you are. Therefore, they are beautiful and good. Uh, they are fear-invoking and in that uh, they show us like a spotlight our own failure to keep the commandments. They lead us to Christ, and being in Christ, they show us the true goal of his work in our hearts. And therefore, they are our constant guide towards heaven. Not as a means to earn our way to heaven, but as um, a clear depiction of the righteousness that is ours in Christ. And I just ask God that you would help us in each of these, particularly in those places where each of us falls short to, um, to cast ourselves upon Christ afresh as our righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the, um, we talked about it's uh, thou shalt not murder and not thou shalt not kill um, because there are some uh, in a fallen world, not necessarily new heavens, new earth, but in a fallen world, there are situations where it is appropriate to kill. And so, but we should, I don't think we should, in saying that, I don't think we should then conclude that killing is ever good. So that's, that's a fine distinction, right? So uh, maybe a good illustration is even the, the executioner in the old days, uh, you know, you'd have a hood on um, and uh, there'd be like a, a sense of him even asking forgiveness as he executed not, not because he'd done anything wrong per se, but because death is it's not good. It's not, a, not to be a part of God's creation, ever, uh, in, his, in his new creation. But it is a part of the fallen world in which we live. Also, I think that um, murder is the, is the opposite 
of loving one's neighbor. So, um, Romans 13.10 says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And so we talked about sometimes that the commandments have a narrow focus and then they have a broad focus, right? So the narrow focus of the command is literally do not kill somebody, right? Unjustly, don't murder somebody. But when you put it in the context of loving one's neighbor, that's much broader, isn't it? And it's much more, it's, can be much more difficult to know how you apply that in your life. Um, so, <clears throat> and again, I, I think John Frame is always important that you have the norm, you have the situation, and you have the heart intent. And all of those are important as you look at these. Uh, turn to James 4 for a moment. James 4, 1 to 3. I'll go ahead and read that. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Uh, And then he says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So in this, um, at the very heart, the intention of a murder and not loving your neighbor is selfishness. Unbridled selfishness. All right? Um, The situation always is, what does it mean to love our neighbor? And the norm is, do not murder, do not kill. That's the the norm. So... um, So in order for it to be murder, it has to be done somewhat with a heart of selfishness and a something that is not loving one's neighbor, right? Do you see how all that kind of fits together, all of those? Um, <clears throat> Last week we spoke that there are exceptions when uh, killing is appropriate, And one of those was capital punishment. And who can tell me the verse that proves capital punishment? Genesis 9, 6. Uh, Whenever you're talking with someone, it was my, um, my recommendation... Do not get into philosophical arguments with people over whether or not capital punishment is a good deterrent, 
whether there are other things that are worse than capital punishment. You know, I think all those discussions are, in the end, relatively fruitless because people will believe what they want to believe and they can always find stats to, to uh, back up what they believe. And just take them to Genesis 9-6 where God explicitly states not only that a murderer should be killed, put to death, but that he should be put to death by human hands. By man shall the, the murderer be put to death. So Genesis 9-6 is really, really important for us. At the same time, in order for capital punishment to exist, you have to have good proof. So it would be an incredibly bad injustice to actually take someone's life who didn't deserve to have their life taken, right? And you definitely hear of those situations that occur, and those are true atrocities. Um, but what, what is required in the Bible for there to be capital punishment? Two witnesses, right? That's Deuteronomy 17. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. Uh, the person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Uh, and God is demonstrating there that uh, it is the responsibility of a society to try to get it right and to not rush to judgment and, and those kind of things. So... Um, <clears throat> understanding, okay, let's, let's do uh, one, um, one more thing in this. The fact that a society is, is obligated to execute capital punishment as a form of justice um, is, is, I think, without, um, it can't be, denied according to scripture uh people can say well that's old testament israel but is genesis 9 old testament israel it's prior to the flood right <laughs> it's a noah's day so it's not even under the mosaic law it's just a statement uh that i think is uh every society would do well to follow at the same time does any society including israel absolutely apply the death penalty? Have they? Perfectly? Always? No. So there's a, there's a sense where society is supposed to in some way try to emulate God, but there's also an ex, just an uh, implied understanding that absolute perfect justice cannot be distributed in this life and that only God can bring absolute perfect justice. In fact, there are plenty of examples in Scripture where justice is not applied. Can you think of some Old Testament examples where justice is not applied? Yeah, we just talked about that, didn't we? <laughs> Cain. This is a particularly strange one because God is the one who holds back on, uh, on absolute killing of Cain. Cain deserves to be killed. Moses, uh, because he killed the Egyptian, okay? Of course, he runs. They might have tried to kill him if he, if he hadn't, if he'd have stayed. Uh, David, right? I think David's a particularly interesting one because, you know, he's, he's the uh, king. <laughs> uh, 
Well, I don't think that God was going to kill him, but that's a different, that's not necessarily, he's asked about Zipporah or Zipporah, uh, that he doesn't uh, circumcise his kids and God was going to kill him. But that's not necessarily an execution of, of like Moses didn't kill someone and therefore he deserved to die. Uh, this is, uh, has other covenantal implications, I would say. So, um, but the fact of the matter is, Capital punishment is, uh, is here to help us understand that sin deserves death. And that comes from the very beginning, right? Um, and when it's not instituted, uh, there is a, a cry of injustice that is uh, calling out. In fact, God says the blood cries out from the ground of Abel, um, Okay, so in the, in the New Testament especially, but in the Old Testament too, there's a, there is a, a sense where you're not supposed to take personal vengeance because you're leaving room for God's final vengeance, right? He's going to be the one to finally punish people. Um, yeah, so okay, so let's talk a little bit about war. Um, this is one I think that is uh, difficult for us to understand correctly. So, yeah. If it's an accident. Correct. There has to be intent. Okay. It has to be intent uh, in capital punishment. You have to prove that there's intent, that this was, it wasn't two guys just getting in a fist fight and one guy hits him and he happens to fall on the corner of a table, and he dies. Uh, it wasn't intent to kill. Um, so, yeah, intent has to be a part of it. So, yeah? Um, in Revelation 6.10, when the, uh, the saints go, how long, O Lord, before you enact vengeance, how does that relate to the issue of the punishment and the um, long-suffering of God, if you would, involving that type of thing? Well, the saints are Christians who have experienced many injustices on the earth, and therefore, those injustices have to be uh, dealt with. And so, I mean, they're just, they're crying out uh, to God for uh, final justice, even on them as the church. And then you run into how, how crazy this is, because on one sense, you would say, Saul is one of the people that they would cry out against because Saul actually persecuted Christians, right? And that's a, a direct application. But instead of God giving uh, justice to uh, Saul, he, he brings him into the, his own camp, right? And so therefore the, the injustice um, that, was, that Paul was uh, doing is actually applied to Christ in his death on the cross. So, there, so there's still justice that's being done so but in the final judgment if your sins are not placed on Christ then then you have to bear them and so they're crying out for the final justice of God because it hasn't been distributed in this life it is something that must occur in the final judgment so and even saints cry out to that for justice so it's a strange thing you know we're on the one hand we're crying out for repentance we should want those who have inflicted sin against us to be um, repentant so that their sins could be applied 
to Christ, and therefore they could be forgiven and brought into that, right? We should, as Christians, you should want there to be uh, repentance and faith, um, but at the same time, if there's not that repentance and faith, then you, it's appropriate for God, for you to cry out to God for justice. So both of those are appropriate. So that answer your thoughts or? Well, it is. I mean, it, it, we're just not at the end. We're not. And so there's, there's got to be a final settling of accounts. And God, God does that perfectly. I don't know how to perfectly work that all out. Um, so, yeah. I mean, that's, God is the only one that perfectly understands the norm, the situation, the heart. And so he's the one that has to make the final perfect judgment. So, all right. So let's talk a little bit about a war because I do think this is misunderstood. A lot of times we just talk about just war. Um, but I think that when we deal with, um, we usually go to Old Testament examples as justification for just war. And, 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 but I think we have to um, uh, maybe more, with a little more clarity understand what's going on in the Old Testament. And this will actually be a very helpful thing to you apologetically, because there are some people who hate the Bible because there are instances of God commanding uh, war, uh, total war, uh, upon other people. So let's look at a few of those. So uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 2, 32 to 34. Um, do we have a microphone? Oh, there it is. Uh, Lori Pate, would you read that for me? 32 to 34. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Okay, so here's an example. If you don't know uh, the context of this, um, this is my picture of Israel. Um, the Israelites initially, after they come up out of Egypt, were going to enter the promised land that way, and then they fail because of the, the spies' reports. But 40 years later, the next generation comes around this way and enters here. But they deal with two kingdoms here outside of the promised land, and uh, one of those is Sihon. Um, and so... Uh, there's, there's another people down here, Edom, which God actually tells the Israelites, don't, don't destroy them. <laughs> Just don't try to get around them, you know. Uh, but these uh, two kingdoms, God says to uh, completely destroy. And there's a statement here, they are devoted to destruction and that phrase is is uh um whenever you see it it's very important to understand 
um, I'm not going to tell you exactly what it means right now, uh, except that it, it means that you could kill all, <laughs> right? There was no, no mercy at this point whatsoever. Men, women, children wiped out, no survivors. Okay, that's a pretty, that's gruesome, right? All right, turn to Deuteronomy 7, 23 to 26. Jim, why don't you read that one for me? By the way, Jim and Edie, who you know, are usually here with us, have finally made their move to Murphy. And uh, we, just, we, we miss them, but we're glad that they're worshiping with uh, Mary's uh, brother, who's a pastor down in Murphy. So, uh, Jim and Edie. Use your accent. Yeah. <laughs> My Dominican accent. He, nobody can sound quite like Jim Escudero. <laughs> but El Dios... Uh, but, but the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it's devoted to destruction. Okay, so this part of the destruction is people, but another part of it is idols, right? You're not to keep any of the... And the idols would have been very costly, so they would have been useful in terms of wealth. And, he, and God says, no, the people are devoted to destruction and all of their possessions are devoted to destruction. Don't use that stuff, okay? Let's, Joshua 6, 17 and 18. Take that to Mike Starnes, let him read that for us. Joshua 6, 17 and 18. is referring to Jericho so and the city shall be accursed even it and all that are that are therein to the Lord only Rahab the harlot shall live she and all that are with her in the house because she hid the messengers that we sent and ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. Okay, so in this situation, uh, in, in Mike's translation, instead of devoted to destruction, it says cursed, which is, you know, they're, they're complementary translations. Um, we do see that uh, in this city that's devoted to destruction, there is an exception with Rahab and all who are in her house, but... God, we know that um, uh, Israel gets into trouble because they keep a little bit of the stuff that God said. Uh, Achan does that, and, and there's trouble there. So um, Joshua 11.20. Carla, read that for me. 
For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, so here you see the word utterly in her translation. Destroy them utterly, and there's no mercy. You see that? No mercy whatsoever that's given on them. All right, a um, couple more. Genesis or Deuteronomy 20. One through four. All right, Laura, you're up. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Okay, this doesn't really refer to devoted to destruction kind of issues, but it does give you the, the, um, the sense that God is with you, that he's enabling you. He's even giving you strength to carry out this destruction, right, to gain the victory. So it's, it's uh, certainly a positive thing to be able to do this. Genesis 15. Genesis 15. 13 to 16. Way to go. Just take it to the next person, Christian. You're doing good. 13 to 16. And the king said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, They will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Okay, so when he says the sin of the Amorites, he's talking about this 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 realm right here and he's you know abraham is a sojourner in this land and he says no you're going to have to go 400 years you're going to go down to egypt and after after 400 years the people of israel is going to be brought back up i'm going to punish the egyptians and at that time what does he say about the sin of the amorites last nail's not in the coffin Good. Their sin is not complete. Now, these are God's words. I I wouldn't even know when somebody's sin is complete. Uh, I wouldn't know that. Uh, But God, in his divine wisdom, in his ability to understand the heart, the situation, the norm perfectly, he decides that the, the people of Canaan, that their sin is complete. And um, all of this no mercy, utterly cursed, devoted to destruction is designed as what? What is it a foreshadow of? What's that? 
Yes. It is a foreshadow of the final judgment. It's, it itself is not absolute judgment, but it is a foreshadow of the final judgment. There are other uh, events in history that are also the foreshadow of the final judgment. What are they? The flood is also a foreshadow. Sodom and Gomorrah is a good one. Yeah. There's one other one on the good side. Nope. Well, I'd say the killing of the Egyptians is probably a foreshadow of that. Yep. But this is on the good side. Well, that, uh, but that's the, the judgment doesn't come upon them because they repent. Yes, the cross. The cross is a foreshadow of the final judgment. In fact, it is a part of the final judgment. God is taking the final judgment and bringing it back and placing it on Christ, right? I mean, that's the, that is, uh, it's our final judgment sins that are poured out on Jesus. So uh, it's not something that is, Jesus dies on the cross and then there's the final judgment. His, his death is portion, it's really the final judgment of all the elect, all those who will be in Christ, right? So, okay, so, but this is a foreshadow. Now, People don't understand this. They just, uh, I, I don't think that you can take Israel's actions in any of these battles and put it into a just war scenario. Just war scenarios, things like you got to, it's self-defense. Um, you know, there's an oppressor that you're trying to overcome. You know, all these kind of things in a just war. This is not just war. This is God basically saying, I am executing final judgment on these people and you are my executioner. That's what he's saying. And that is hard. Yes? Well, that, I would call the severing of the, 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 uh, the destruction of the temple as a, as a symbolic way of saying that the nation of Israel is being cut off, like the branch is being cut off. Um, maybe a picture of final judgment, yeah, but not... Uh, not, you know, Paul says that some of those Israelites can be grafted back in. So, um, but I do think that this scenario, what we're saying here, is not that it's right, not that Joshua just said, you know what, let's go get that land. We want that land. <laughs> and we're going to go in and we're going to wipe people out to get it. If that were the case, I would be against it. I'd be opposed to that. It's, it's like, now I know that we have all the different... Um, there's a lot of things we don't know about the Ukraine and Russia scenario, and I'm not making final uh, judgments on that. But let's just assume that, the, that it is true that the Russians are simply greedy and wanting Ukraine. We would look at that as wrong, you know, to just go in and say, you know, I like what you have, and therefore I'm going to take it. That's an act of selfishness. That's an act of atrocity that's wrong. Um, and so we have to, as Christians, be able to explain how our Old Testament, where God actually commands us to go in and take out people and do it emphatically and absolutely, why that's not an atrocity. And the only way I think you can do that is to explain to people that there is a final judgment coming, and that judgment will indeed be all-encompassing. Anyone who's not in Christ will be, will be destroyed. There's no hope outside of Christ, similar to Noah and the ark. Um, 
That's, that's the only way I can think about trying to explain that. Otherwise, it just, it is a conflicting, and this is why people say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. Now we have the God of the New Testament. They're not two different gods. He's just explaining in these scenarios, I will come in judgment unless you're in the ark of my son, basically. I mean, that's the... Philosophical, oops, from a philosophical, I guess, point of view also when we talk about God's sovereignty is the fact that whatever God ordains, decrees, whatever, is also just and right. I mean, I realize that's not going to, uh, that's not going to satisfy anybody that does, doesn't believe in the Bible and God, but that is also part of the fact. He's not, he doesn't sin when he does these things, when he commands these things. Correct. I mean, I, I think that is a general um, uh, humble way to approach the text of Scripture. If God does something that is right, as long as we don't then just assume that God's standard of rightness is different than our standard, um, we do have, we want to show that God's standard of rightness is something that we're trying to model. And, and really what God is doing is ultimately filling, fulfilling Genesis 9-6 which is that if someone is a murderer or a sinner and deserves death, then that must be executed, and God is not going to go against that. He will bring about just death and punishment. And as much as that scares me, <laughs> because I am on the side of, uh, I'm like a Rahab, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in the city and, and, and could be judged. I'm clinging in faith to Christ, and that's my hope. Go ahead, Laurie. I think um, where I've heard the most um, confusion in this, we, we actually were in a Sunday school class where the um, God commanding to kill the entire city, including the children, was hotly <laughs> debated on, you know, okay, I can understand, you know, the parents are sinners and they're idol worshipers, but what about the children? And it just made me think that in the final judgment, there will also be children on the earth at that point. And so I guess, would you just say that that's a matter of the the elect who, I mean, how would you explain that? Okay, so first off, um, I would say that um, being godly parents, and I, what I mean by godly is not perfect parents, but, but of the faith, being in the faith, I would consider you guys godly parents, um, uh, doesn't guarantee godly offspring. That's not a guarantee. But... Uh, being ungodly parents, apart from some uh, evangelistic, supernatural work of God's grace to, to insert and save somebody, your kids will also be ungodly. And so if God is finished saving people, um, it's not as if the kids themselves are innocent. They have, history has shown that left to ourselves, every child moves toward, it plunges toward a destiny of always doing evil all the time. That'll be in the sermon today. 
that is the march that everyone is on. We're not all there yet. Even in our society today, among unbelievers, there's a lot of good that happens. But if God didn't, if he removes his grace, the true intent and bent of their hearts would be to do evil. So that tells me that in the judgment day, um, rather than the thought that every kid at that time will be saved, these examples at least give me uh, some justification of saying that these children of unbelievers will suffer with them. And that's a sobering thought. That's a very sobering thought, which is why we should be thankful we're in the day of grace, and we should be doing evangelism, even with the kids of unbelievers, right? I mean, we should want to see people trust in Christ. Um, I am very thankful. My mom took me to church. I was, you know, baptized as, a, as an infant, and she was a believer uh, throughout my life, but my dad wasn't. But I am very thankful for those kids uh, that were Christians that actually took me to Bible study with them and shared the gospel with me and, you know, those kind of things. But I think in the final judgment, it, it seems to be, I don't want to be absolute, but it seems to me that these people, it's a symbol that they are in eternal destruction. We're not to think, oh, every kid goes to heaven at this point. So, um, especially unbelieving, with unbelieving parents. So, I don't know. Does that answer the question or not? Does it just cloud things even more? <laughs> I, I don't, I think that believers have a, a privilege, you can call it a right if you want, but it's a privilege to believe that their children are included with them like, for instance, if, if a child dies in infancy or if there's someone like Jenny who can't profess faith, I think we have a right, a privilege to believe that God's mercy doesn't just extend to us as individuals but also to our children. I don't know that, that unbelievers have that privilege. Now, again, everything gets sticky, right? So just imagine someone's had an abortion. They're not a believer. Later on, they become a believer right? And so now they're wondering, is my child in eternal damnation, right? I mean, that's a, that's a real thought that women have. As a pastor, I would want to give them hope. I'd want to say that there is, you are now a believer, and, and maybe you weren't at the time that that occurred, but God's sovereign, and his mercy to you now as a believer may, also he may save that child. We don't know certainly of that, but I think the believer has a hope that that child will be with them. I don't think unbelievers. I don't think an unbeliever can have hope for their children when they're not hoping in Christ for themselves. And that's why, as in our baptismal vows, it's always, are you hoping for the salvation of your children as you hope for your own salvation, right? So um, all these things get sticky. We're not the final judge. God is, is, is sovereign. But I would say that if God does save that child, it is because of mercy, not because the child's innocent. So, um, I have a small point of confusion. You yeah. mentioned the notion <laughs> of a just war. Yes. Okay, now, if you have two men fighting because somebody, one guy attacked the other, that I can understand. But wars are fought by large groups. Yes. Countries, armies, and they are not generally instigated by the men in the armies, the people. They're instigated by the leaders at the top who are motivated by 
selfishness, greed, et cetera, et cetera. So how can there be a just war? Okay, <laughs> so okay. So first thing I wanted to do is a lot of times people go to the Old Testament and they use that for their description of just war. And I just wanted you to be clear that there are very different things. What, what God is doing with his people Israel when he tells Joshua to go in and, and destroy, that is a, that's a foreshadow of final judgment. That's not just just war, okay? That's, just be clear on that. So we haven't really gotten to the idea of just war yet. Um, but if, if we're clear on, on Israel as mud, you know, uh, if we're clear on Israel, then we can move to just war. Uh, and so in, when John the Baptist is, is preaching repentance, there are Roman soldiers in the midst. And some of those Roman soldiers want to uh, be baptized as in preparation of the Messiah coming, and they want to repent, and they, and they say, what must we do? John does not tell them that they must leave the army. Okay, so that's, this, is a, this is an argument from inference. It's not explicit, but, but there does seem to be that a Roman soldier is able to carry out his duties as a Roman soldier and still be right with God. Okay, you following that? Um, and you're absolutely right. The Roman soldier is not obligated to know um, exactly the motivations of their kings. Right? So it is possible so that a Roman soldier uh, c- could be involved in what God would deem an unjust war, and yet the Roman soldier still be... Um, himself not guilty of murder, okay? So that's, that's kind of the scenario. Um, a case in point would be, I do believe that there were some uh, soldiers in the German army who um, were probably believers during World War II, but there were probably some like that, um, even though that we would say that Hitler was very unjust in what he was doing. Um, what we're uh, so a soldier's not always obligated to know all the motivations of their kings, and so at the same time there is some duty. We talked about this last week that you are not supposed to to commit yourself an atrocity, uh, and so you see. I don't think people can just hide completely behind um, orders of superiors, that there is a sense where if you know that something is absolutely unjust, that you should disobey your commanding officer. Um, That being said, there is something called just war, at least in the minds of theologians in in ages past, and I don't want to get into all the details of this, um, but they have certain criteria for setting up what is uh, legitimate and what is not. And so the best example usually that we give is during World War II, um, America didn't really want to go into war, um, but we were attacked by the Japanese, and, and therefore we also decided to then uh, go in and, and destroy the, both the Japanese and the Germans together. Uh, we weren't the only ones to do that. Other allies were just as... Uh, important, if not more important than us. But that was our justification. It wasn't a war of aggression. It wasn't us just going in and doing that. Um, 
American Revolution would be another example. I talked about how the governors and rulers of our country thought that the rulers in England, the king, was acting unjustly, and in protection of their citizens, they thought it was important for them to rise up in rebellion against their superiors. And so that's another case of just war situation. I, as a political science minor, I, I like just war theory. I think it's important um, because not every nation is Christian. In fact, I would say the only nation in the, ever that God's people was Israel uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, and so we, what we have is or are so we have nations and they're always bumping up into each other right and, and um, these nations sometimes would conquer another nation uh, and, you know, overcome them to gain more, more of their territory. This happened all the time throughout history. But I believe God is the one in his wisdom who instituted this type of world in which we live. Do you remember the situation of the Tower of Babel? What was going on in the Tower of Babel? Make a name for themselves, building a tower to heaven. They were establishing one world government. Do you understand this? God understands this very well, and he purposely creates nations. How does he do it? Confusing the languages, right? He purposely, um, you know, you can read the Tower of Babel and you can think, oh, people will just be so great. They'll accomplish so much and it'll be so wonderful. That is not it. Remember Genesis, uh, prior to the flood, people will do evil only all the time. That's the intentions of their hearts. Left to themselves, that'll happen. And if you have one nation then you have all ultimate power in one group of people and they have no one to actually oppose them. And so what God does is he sets up, I believe, various nations. That's exactly right. So even though this nation may be doing evil against that nation, these nations over here get afraid and they come to this guy's help to check this guy. And the more evil a nation is, the more that other countries go, oh yeah, we need to all band together against them. And this happens throughout history, over and over again. As soon as you get the big guy on the block, everyone else gets afraid of the big guy on the block, and so they then band together to fight against the big guy. And this is how God keeps the world in check. The worst scenario that we would want was one world government, unless it is run by Jesus Christ. Oh, it's terrible. So we should be, 
Does it mean that all these nations are good? No. Does it mean that they absolutely have God's interests in mind and doing what's right all the time? No. But I think that this idea that nations exist, and if you're just one little soldier in the nation, it's okay to fight for your country. Now, in America, this has been totally, you know, oh, we're evil, as if all the other countries in the world are good. Nations exist for self-interest. It's what they do. It's not a terrible thing. It's not necessarily Christian, right? And God says that Christians can be in all these nations. Now, I know that we have, with Constantine, kind of the blurring of Christianity and the state, and that, and that is another issue altogether. But, but there are these, we live in a fallen world. We're not in the God's army yet to just wipe out all unbelievers. But we do our Christians in these places, and it can happen that Christians can fight against Christians. And I think God, in his mercy, allows that. Every soldier doesn't have to, to like, figure everything out. Um, you should try to be good as much as you can as a soldier, all those kind of things. But it's, it's, a, it's a fallen world in which we live. The only other option is that God create his own army and wipe out all evil. And that's what will happen at the end. We're just not there yet. Which is why the New Testament says, don't execute vengeance. Love your enemy. Right? That's, that would go against Old Testament Israel. Wipe out everyone who's evil. Right? So the difference there is that we have, as Christians, an obligation to try to act in a way that brings people to Christ. This is why Corey Ten Boom struggles in her mind to try to love the, the, the people over her, and God brings some of them to Christ. That's the world in which we live. Doesn't mean we can't be a part of the police force. Doesn't mean we can't be a part of the army. You know, those kind of things all exist, but they're not ultimates. We live in the age of grace. There will come an end to this age. And that will be the final judgment. And that should scare us all. So, does that answer your question? <clears throat> um, same thing. So, so we've, done, we've done capital punishment. We've done war. What about self-defense in general? Okay, we have people uh, that are here. Philip's in the back of the room as part of a... a uh, security detail that helps protect us, right? I mean, that's... So what do we do with self-defense? How do we handle that? Because it is appropriate in some situations to take the life of another in self-defense. But how does God put parameters on that? Yes. You have to have some justification that your life is in danger. Um, what are... Uh, restrictions does he put on it? Okay, so there is a sense of protecting those who are weaker. So if you're mo this is where motivation is important. If you're just out there, I want to get kill and create vengeance, then I think there's a problem with your motivation. But if some, someone comes and they're going to attack Jenny, it's my right to do whatever I can to, to eliminate the threat against Jenny, and I should do that. I should run to the problem. Even though I'm a Christian and I should want to have mercy, <laughs> I should to try to 
in, in loving Jenny or Robin, I should be going to the problem and fighting it as best I can, okay? But there are still some other restrictions. What happens if they do actually kill Jenny? Am I justified in just tracking them down and killing them? <laughs> well, I, and, and, you know, to be fair, I do think God takes somewhat into consideration when, when um, something atrocity occurs and you're, and you're acting out of, you know, still love for the person that's been, you know, think of um, the evil of those who, um, uh, the brothers who um, uh, killed the people that raped Dinah. I forget the names of them. I should know that. Uh, it was evil. It was wrong. <laughs> what was it? Yeah, Levi and Simeon, the brothers. But it, I try to remember the peoples that, the Shechem, I think, maybe, yeah. Um, so anyway, the, the point is, they did what was evil. And usually when you take vengeance on yourself, this is a good example, you go beyond true justice. And this is where you get like the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? So you have like, they did this, so I'm justified in doing this, and then you're back here and this here, and it just keeps escalating, right? So that's the, only God knows how to execute perfect justice in a situation. That's why we're, another reason why we're supposed to leave that to him. Um, so I think that a lot of times it's in self-defense. If there's a crime that occurs and it occurred yesterday, you're not allowed to just go track someone down. In fact, God actually instituted cities. He called them cities of refuge because he knew people would actually, in rage, just want to rise up and kill them. And so he puts them in these cities of refuge to actually create more justice in his society, right? Prevent those emotional fits of rage in that. So self-defense, rescuing the needy, is different than simply, I've got to execute vengeance on another person. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I do think this is part of the reason why God gives the sword to those in authority. And I, uh, you ever saw, like, uh, what's it called? Uh, Who Shot Liberty Vance? Liberty Valance, yeah, uh, Liberty Valance. So there's, there's, in the Old West, right, it's all about revenge. You know, you killed my family member, I'm going to get you. And Because there wasn't any justice in the land, and so people took it on themselves to do that. But there's a sense of you want to have authorities who it's their objective job to actually carry out that. When a society doesn't carry out vengeance, it actually um, inspires more acts of vigilante revenge, which is not a good thing for society. This is why society should continue to, that, that killer should be brought to justice. Now, here's the thing. Just killing the killer doesn't bring about the kids back. It doesn't actually fix it, which is why really what we need is a resurrection. <laughs> we need, that's really, I mean, you can't get justice in this world. And some people say, well, that's not good enough for them. We just need to make them suffer and suffer and suffer, right? I mean, but that's an, this attitude that we understand that this world can't bring us perfect justice. But I do think that that killer should be brought to, to, to limited justice in the sense that he should be capital punishment. I think that that should occur uh, in that situation. 
I know that there's other scenarios, there's more facts. I mean, maybe there were um, circumstances that we don't know about. I, I don't know. But, um, but in general, if you can prove that his intent was to murder people and that he did that, then I think that it should be, he should be brought to that justice. But it's not going to fix things for the parents, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> we, it, might, it will stop them from doing it again. <laughs> Yeah, and that's where you, you run into um, how much, like, if, you, if they've committed lesser crimes previously, should they already have been in jail and they weren't put in jail? I mean, there's all kinds of questions on the justice system. Um, and, and I would say that the justice system is, to, is designed to limit these atrocities, but it will never get rid of all of them. Just can't do it, so... Yeah, when a society doesn't do its job, it doesn't it doesn't incur more um, of the same. And our society, uh, you know, I know we always talk about gun control, and that's always uh, in the news and stuff. Um, um, if you don't have guns, people will figure out some way to kill each other. Cain uh, didn't have a gun. He killed Abel. So um, the heart of the issue, and I think we, we very rarely talk about that murder connects to loving your, your neighbor, and it, it talks of self-control over emotions such as coveting and anger and those sorts of things. And that's something that a society can promote uh, and can help. Uh, to try to, uh, you know, when we throw out the Bible, we're throwing out the very thing that is designed to help us fight against that which is in us that would make us murderers. Um, but again, just because you have the command doesn't mean you're going to stop it all, right? Who, I mean, God showed up with Cain and actually told him, don't do this, fight against your sin, and he still did it. <laughs> so it's just, we live in this fallen world. It's, it's nothing that's going to fix it all completely. Indulge your feelings. Right. And I do believe that there is, that societies can, can uh, get worse. Some people say that, no, society is always the same. We've always done. No, I think it can get worse. And the more that the truth of God is not penetrating into people's hearts, the more it will get worse. Mm-hmm. Well, those are just blots of um, flesh. They're just tissue. They're not really humans. Um, well, I mean, again, so when you start looking at loving one's neighbor, you get into, so, um, maybe I'll end with this just to create a little bit of a can of worms for us. So, uh, 
if our if uh, if our policies uh, with carbon emissions are actually destroying the earth such that all people will die right let's just i'm just assuming this is true okay if that's the case then every policy of greenpeace makes sense okay but in order to enact the policies of greenpeace You will kill people. It's just that simple. It's proven in history that to not give people cheap, easy energy will result in their death. And by restricting that, you are killing people. Okay? Now, it could be justified if you're trying to save everybody. Okay, that's a big question. That's right. And you got all these theories. You know, do you care about the... The individual, or do you care about the, the whole, right? I'm not, uh, this is not me. I'm, I, don't, I don't really believe that the earth is going to die itself just because of what I do. I think God's in control of that. But maybe some of those policies can be, greed and selfishness can result in killing as well, right? Think about the coal miners. Uh, did, the, did the business owners care about those coal miners getting black lung? <laughs> They didn't care. <laughs> so it can happen on that, that level too. Um, but I do think that we just have to realize if, if the earth is not being destroyed by these policies, then this is absolutely atrocious. And you know what? I tend to be on this side over here because I care about the individual's but if someone could legitimately prove that this was happening, then we would have to have some consideration of this, right? Does that make sense? Like we, there's, and our, and our pol- politicians are, don't trust them one way or the other to give it, <laughs> straighten it out for you because <laughs> they all have their own self-interest, right? Uh, so I think that, that the, the, the command is to not murder and, and we say, that that is to preserve life. And, and um, I wasn't ready. I, didn't ha- I don't have the... There's actually an institute that, is, um, that I can find the information for. A guy that I know, Cal Beisner, he actually has done tons of research on how our policies are affecting the poorest of the poor throughout the world. Um, you know, to us in America, high gas prices is one thing, but, but to other countries, not having cheap energy is killing lots of people. Um, so just, just know that uh, I'm glad I'm not in that place making all those big decisions up high. Um, I have to somewhat leave that to, the, to those who know better than I do, but, but we, we, we do want politicians who understand that their policies are killing people. And that's a scary thing to be, um, scary place to be if it's not justified. Huh? Well, but even businesses can do the same thing, right? I mean, businesses, I mean, I, I just think there's greed and evil on every, if there's one thing to learn, I would rather have the greed and evil be on the side of the business owner than I would on the government because there's no one to check the government. <laughs> so um, anyway, let me close. 
Father, thank you so much for this time. And Lord, uh, help us to not simply look at others and point fingers. The truth of the matter is, none of us love our neighbor like we should. And we are guilty and we are selfish. Only the Lord Jesus Christ was perfect. And I pray, Father, that you would humble us, that you would challenge us, that you would um, make us uh, like Christ, give us his attitude. And I ask God that you would also help our government leaders, that they would truly care about the people that they are called to serve. And you would help them, Lord. I don't judge them all. I don't, I don't presume to be in their place. Uh, it is a very difficult world in which we live. And I pray, Father, that you would give them humble hearts and help them to know you and to love you. And, Father, I thank you that you will come and you will make all things right. In Jesus' name, amen.